you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. As uh, David mentioned, and as you saw on the screen, we are in week 3 of our series together, The Five Solas. We are learning together the foundational truths that define our faith as Christians. Many of you are involved in your small groups or in your class here at church. You have been engaged with the workbook, which we're getting very great reports on. People are feeling challenged and blessed to learn so much. I can't tell you how many people have come and said, I've been a Christian five years, 10 years, 25 years. I never knew any of this stuff. And they're so thrilled to be able to learn and get along together with us. So we hope you're enjoying the series. The Reformation was fueled by truth, foundational truths that define our faith even today. Many of us are raised to believe that if we're going to gain anything worth having in this life, we've got to earn it, including our salvation. Well, the reformers discovered in the gospel that not only can they not earn it, they don't have to because Jesus Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. It's all by God's grace, sola gratia. And one of the things that fueled their understanding were scriptures like this one in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul wrote like this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray for a moment. Father, your grace is amazing, more than we know, more than we know. So many times, God, we want to feel as though we've done something to merit this kind of grace, this kind of salvation. It's very humbling for us to see that even while we were dead in our sins, you offered us this grace. As we read this again today, as we discover all over again this wonderful truth, and praying you'll help build a foundation to our faith from which we'll go out into the world and share with others the good news of this grace. Sola gratia, by grace alone. And we thank you, God, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I mentioned many times, we are taught from the time we're little that if you're going to have anything, you've got to go earn it. I was reading a piece by Kevin Miller executive VP of Christianity Today, also pastors of church in Wheaton, Illinois. He said, when I was five years old, 
I first fully understood the message of these words. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows if you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Uh, if you didn't recognize by my singing that Santa Claus is coming to town. But anyway, <laughs> you remember the verses that go on. He's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out what? Who's naughty and nice? Santa Claus is coming to town. So you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Kevin Miller said, until that moment, I had lived in this childhood bliss in which Christmas was the best day of the year. I had always believed that the gifts at Christmas time were there because Christmas always came with gifts. You could count on them. But now I painfully understood that if I wanted any gifts at Christmas, I had to be good. It was all riding on me. There was this all-seeing, all-knowing Santa, and if there was going to be any gifts, I'd better shape up. But then I thought, well, how good is good? Can a person be pretty good? Does Santa understand that I have a twin brother, so I have more reason to be provoked than other kids? It was all so worrisome to me. And then he said, I grew up a little more, and I went to elementary school. And there I learned that if you're going to get what you want, it's all by your works. He said, we had a reading program. I was nine years old. He said it was called SRA. Here's how it worked. You went to a box. You pulled out a card. You read what was on the card. You answered the questions. If you got the questions right, you moved up a color. So you went from red to yellow to blue, and you worked your way up. Nobody wanted to be down at the bottom of the colors because that showed you weren't too bright. So he said, we all wanted to reach the epitome of elementary school glory, aquamarine. And he said, you can only get there by your own efforts. He said, I grew up a little more. I was 14 years old. And a friend invited me to a meeting after school called Campus Life. There was a guy there who had a beard, which automatically made him cool. And he also had a guitar, which made him even cooler. And he started saying stuff I had never heard before. He said that if you wanted the good stuff from God, stuff like peace and forgiveness, the Holy Spirit and eternal life, it didn't work like Santa, where you had to be good or you got nothing. He pointed out that it didn't work like my SRA reading program, where it was all dependent on me, being good enough and working hard enough. He said there was a thing called grace. That God had decided to take all my sin and forgive me. The grace had something to do with Jesus dying on a cross for me, he said. That all I had to do was believe. And this man, he read from the Bible, which I had never really read. And he read that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This message was different from anything I had ever heard before. It was not what I expected. It wasn't all on me. It was all on him, on Jesus. That message was so freeing that as I took it in, I almost started to cry, but I, I was a 14-year-old guy, and we don't do stuff like that, not in front of our friends. So the next week I thought, I better not go to that meeting again because I almost started to cry last week. And I cannot be humiliated by breaking down in front of my friends. But I did go. 
and I heard the message of grace again. And I believed it. And I was saved by his amazing grace. Amazing indeed. It's what saved a wretch like the slave trader John Newton, who would go on to be a great pastor and write that timeless hymn, Amazing Grace. It's what saved a man like Paul, chief of sinners, he said, and persecutor of Christians. And that grace would make him into a powerful missionary and the man God would use to write half our New Testament. It was God's grace that saved a moral lowlife like me. And brought me into relationship with a God I had never known. And gave me the privilege over the years of sharing this grace with thousands of people. It was this grace that saved a bombastic Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther. Transformed him into the morning star of a reformation. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. The rediscovery of that grace fueled a reformation. It opened the eyes and the hope of a whole generation. And it's still saving people who believe. Sola gratia, by grace alone. You see, the Apostle Paul could not have been clearer when he wrote of this amazing grace to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. The grace, the charis in the Greek, the unmerited favor of God. And there's two aspects of this grace that we experience all the time. One is common grace. It's grace given to all humanity. It's grace that allows us to breathe his air, drink his water, eat his food, wear his clothes, drive his car, live in his house. It's everything that God gives to sustain life for us. He does it for the just and the unjust. He does it for the rebellious and the repentant. As our choir sang this morning, he does it for the saint and for the sinner. It's common grace. Without it, you cannot live. But there's also a thing called saving grace. As Pastor Matt Pierce said in the workbook this week, saving grace is God's response to our sin problem. The wages of sin is death, separation from God. God's saving grace put Jesus on the cross to die with my sin and your sin and the sin of the world. Without that saving grace, there'd be no spiritual Life, There'd be no relationship with God. And I would be spending an eternity in a Christless hell. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, what we cannot earn, and we are powerless to achieve. It is a gift God gives without any merit on our part that will cost him everything, his son. That's some of what we're remembering today in communion. Communion is our remembrance of the death of Jesus, a death he died in our place because of God's grace. 
Jesus said this, do as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. And we've reminded ourselves many times over the years that eating this meal will not earn you any grace. It will not get your sins forgiven. It will not reserve you a spot in heaven. But eating this meal as God intended can remind us of God and his grace and what it has done to save us from our sins. God's amazing grace. Communion in Ephesians 2 reminds us of what the reformers rediscovered in the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone. What did that mean for them and for us? Salvation is not by works. It is the gift of God's grace alone. Paul said in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. I want you to imagine, if you can, for a moment, that you are living in medieval Europe. It's October 31st, 1517. In the world you're living, the Pope is your ultimate authority for all matters of faith and practice. You have been taught since you were little that Christ's righteousness is not enough for you to be saved. That you must earn additional merits to have any hope of ever being accepted by God. You are taught that you will leave this planet without enough merits, and so you will most likely go to a place called purgatory. And there you will spend time being purged of sin and wickedness where you can earn enough merits to hopefully make it to heaven. No one knows how long you will be there, but you can shorten your time in purgatory by paying indulgences by paying money or giving land or possessions or livestock. And the more indulgences you pay, the more merit you will earn and the shorter your time will be in purgatory. But you're also told that you can do works to gain extra merits. You can do things like make a pilgrimage, venerate the saints, pay homage to the saints, where you can do things like bow down and pay homage to a lock of what was called Mary's hair or bow down and pay homage to a piece of wood that supposedly was from the cross. And that by doing these things, you will learn more and more merits to shorten your time in purgatory. And not only that, if you earn enough of these merits, more than you need, then you can apply some of your merits as a credit to some of your loved ones who don't have enough to give them an early spring out of purgatory. And then you learn that the next day, after October 31st, the very next day, November 1st, the church is going to gather all the articles of the saints in one place at a castle church at the University of Wittenberg, Germany. And by going there, you can have opportunity to venerate these saints, bow down before Mary's hair, bow down before a piece of the wood, do all of these things and earn a whole bunch of merits in a single day. Who's not going to show up for that? But when you show up at the castle door to await your turn to go in, that castle door, which is like a community bulletin board, today has a long laundry list of feces or statements against the indulgences, declaring to you that those things don't work, they're not necessary, in fact, You don't have to earn anything. 
And as you read these, you are learning that there is going to be a series of debates where one of the professors at the university by the name of Martin Luther is going to get in a debate with the religious leaders showing from the scriptures that salvation is a gift of God by grace alone. That you, only, you not only don't need to earn these merits, you can't earn these merits. That you don't have to wonder if you're going to be accepted by God, but you're going to learn through the scriptures that this is all by grace alone. In fact, if you have come to put your faith in Christ and his death on the cross, his burial and resurrection, his sacrifice is more than sufficient. You've already been accepted by God because you are in Christ. Amazing. You see, that was the joy that the reformers rediscovered in the gospel and made known to the people. Great truths that were founded on passages like this one in Ephesians 2 verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, the reformers learned we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead in them. Dead people cannot do anything to earn anything. They're dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins means we're powerless to affect any change or earn any merits. Our spiritual deadness was proven by our works and by how we lived. That's why Paul said in verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. People, that was me. I lived there. I was living in disobedience. I didn't give God the time of day. I drank in his common grace and never even thought to thank him for it. I was following what the world taught me to do. And without even knowing it, I was following the rule of Satan himself. People, that's the human condition. There are no exceptions. People live the way they do because they are spiritually dead and they're following the ways of the world in which they're living. But, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. He saved us from sin, death, and the grave. We were dead, but God saved us. No works, no merit, no doubt. It is by grace you have been saved. Grace alone, sola gratia. I like the way Pastor Matt Pierce put it this week in the workbook. 
When someone is dead in trespasses and sins, as reformer Martin Luther argued vehemently, they are incapable of choosing God. They're dead. The human will is bound by sin and naturally inclined towards sinful choices and behaviors. If a person is to be saved, God must regenerate the heart first. Then and only then can a person invite Jesus into their heart or commit their life to him. Invitations and commitments to Christ don't save us. God saves us. Turning our life over to Jesus is our response to his saving work. God initiates, we respond. That's what it means to be saved by grace alone. But God's grace doesn't stop there. It's not as obvious in the English, but in the Greek it's very apparent. There are three verb prefixes here that make it clear what God's grace has powerfully done. The first is in verse 5. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The next two are in verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He made us alive in Christ. He raised us up with Christ and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. He made us alive in him. People, we were dead. And by God's grace, he came and made us alive. Through Christ, we are made alive in him. He raised us up with Christ. He literally raised us together. That when Christ rose from the dead, positionally, we rose with him. It's a done deal. Christ has done it. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Seated us. He literally enthroned us, is the word. With Christ, in the heavenly realms with Jesus. A. Skevington Wood, who's principal of Cliff College in England, wrote, God has also enthroned us with Christ in the heavenly realms. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Both these events have their counterpart in the experience of believers. Not only do they anticipate and assure resurrection and glorification at the end of the age, they are matched by a present realization of the risen life of, in Christ and a participation with him in the ascended majesty. You see, this is why Paul told the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 1, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. People, let me ask you this. Is Jesus living right now in glory? Yes, he is. Is Jesus coming back again in all of that glory? Yes, he is. Is Jesus going to appear for all to see him in that glory. Yes, he is. Well, let me remind you of this. When he appears in that glory, you will be with him. That's the promise of this grace. All by grace alone. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. 
People, if it's by works, who gets the glory? The one who does the works. That's why it's all of God's grace. It's all of God. He gets the glory. That's why Paul said it's not from yourselves. Interesting, that's written in the passive tense, which means you didn't do anything. You're passive. You didn't do anything to merit this. God did everything. By grace, through faith. Faith is the instrument through which the grace is applied. As we shall see even more next week, Lord willing, even the faith we have is God's gift. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Heaven is not going to have a bunch of people running around saying, look what I did. Everyone's going to be standing in awe saying, look what he did. Not from ourselves, it is the gift of God. That's why Paul told the Romans in Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pastor Matt wrote this week in the workbook, grace can be viewed as an incredible act of love on God's part, whereby he opens the hearts of those he has chosen and reveals them to them their sinfulness. Then he supernaturally turns their hearts toward him and actually gives them the faith they need to respond to his offer of salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith. From beginning to end, it's a work of God. R.C. Sproul once wrote, even if you don't see faith as the gift, since faith is included in the whole complex of salvation, faith itself must be understood as a gift, a gift of God and not as human achievement. You see, this grace alone through faith alone became the foundation of the Reformation material principle. You remember from week one, there were two great principles that were part of the Reformation. One was the foundational principle. It was answering the great question, who has ultimate authority? The Pope, the council, or the scriptures? As Pastor Phil demonstrated so powerfully last week in his message, Sola Scriptura, it isn't a Pope or a council, it isn't us or anybody else. It's God who has ultimate authority his word is our ultimate authority because it is God's word. But there was also the material principle. You remember that? It was addressing the question, is how are people saved or justified before a holy God? Is it by works or is it by grace through faith alone? The reformers, Martin Luther and the other reformers, took a stand on the scriptures because they declared that it was by grace through faith alone. Sola gratia became their cry. But that doesn't mean our works don't play an important part. Paul couldn't have been clearer when he said in verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, we aren't saved by our good works. Salvation is by grace alone. But we were saved to do good works as a response to the grace that we've received. You see, earlier in Ephesians 2, Paul said, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the, ruler of the powers of the air. He's telling them, look, 
when you weren't connected to God, when you were not walking in this grace, when you were not saved and filled with salvation, the works in your life were demonstrating that you were dead in your sins. You were following the way of the world. You were following the way of the evil one without even knowing it. And the works of your life were demonstrating that you didn't belong to God. But now that you are a recipient of this grace, if you are saved and justified by this grace, if you have put your faith in this Jesus who lived and died and rose again, if that Christ lives in you and you in him, it's going to show now by the works in your life. When you were dead in your sin, those works proved it. Now that you're saying you're alive in Christ, your works must demonstrate it. Christ is going to be living his life out through you. If there are no works, it raises serious questions about whether or not you've really had saving faith. As Paul told Titus in Titus 2 verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Sola gratia, by grace alone. People, this is the grace, this is the grace of the gospel. This is the grace of God. The grace that we remember today in communion. That apart from law and works and our own merits, a gospel of righteousness from God has been revealed. A righteousness that is by faith because of God's grace. Next week, Lord willing, we hope to focus a lot more on this chapter in Romans 3. Sola fide, by faith alone. Where Paul wrote in Romans 3, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. A redemption that came by grace through the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross. The very grace and the very sacrifice we're remembering right here at this table. Jesus said, this bread is my body. And this cup is my blood. And it's given for you. I gave this because of God's great love for you. And his great grace. Because you could not earn this. So I gave it to you. Now as often as you eat this. Remember me. Remember me. The one who saves you. Sola gratia. By grace alone.
Father, sometimes it seems that one eternity will not be enough to get our minds around this kind of a gift. We struggle with it because we so much want to say that we've done something to earn it. That we made a choice or we did an act or we performed something or there was something in us that made us worthy. But there isn't. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. And we used to live in these when we followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the year. The spirit now at work in those who are disobedient. We lived the way we did because we were dead in our sins. But now we're alive in Christ Jesus. And so the works that flow from our life have to be different because they're not our works, they're your works. And we are told to let those works so shine before men that they may see those things and glorify our Father who is in heaven. They're going to know it isn't us. And all of this accomplished through a sacrifice greater than our words can tell. A sacrifice you asked us to remember at a table like this one. So as we break this bread and eat it today, as we drink of this cup, help us to remember you, the one who has saved us by grace alone. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.